Evening, everyone. It's a real privilege to be um, preaching tonight, and I'll be doing so from James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Can we open in a quick word of prayer? Father, we know that our minds and our hearts are closed to the truth unless you reveal it to us. We need your help this evening as we seek to understand your word. Please help us. Amen. Have you ever come home after a long day at work, your head and your back in a competition for the most persistent dull ache, the thought of the evening's chores seeming too much to bear? All you want is that sweet, refreshing treat in the form of an ice cream cone. But alas, the thought of having to turn the ice cream cone as you lick it is just too much to bear, not after the day that you've had. Well, allow me to introduce you to the self-turning ice cream cone. Now, if you're super lazy and you don't even want to spin your ice cream cone, you can eat that. And it won't drip. To spin your ice cream cone, this will spin it for you. So you put your tongue on it and you're lazy. Oh, you're kidding, is that what we've come to? Powered by two AA batteries, batteries not included, this invention is guaranteed to turn more than just your head as it turns the ice cream cone around for you. All you need to do is stick out your tongue and enjoy the fruits of your hard labor. Hopefully, with the next model, you won't even need to stick out your tongue. After the day you've had, who has the energy to stick out their tongue? In many ways, the story of society and the story of human progress is the avoidance of pain and effort and discomfort and suffering. We have lifts that take us up when we need to be up, and when we're done, they will be ready and waiting to take us back down again. We have air conditioners for when it's too hot and heaters for when it's too cold. We have dehumidifiers for when it's too humid, and just in case you leave your dehumidifier on too long, you can turn on your humidifier to return you to the perfect level of humidity. All is right with the world. Of course, we praise God for the many ways in which our lives have become easier and more comfortable, often at the hand of inventors who have been spurred on by laziness. But for Christians, the avoidance of pain and suffering and discomfort is not our highest goal. In fact, this passage that we'll be looking at tonight has a really striking exhortation about how Christians are are to respond to difficult times. And that is what I hope we can dig into a little bit uh, more as we look at James chapter one, verses two to four. And while I started on a lighter note about how humans attempt to avoid even the most minor of inconveniences, I don't mean to make light of suffering of anyone. In fact, I feel passionately that it's important that we get our doctrine of suffering right, because as we will see, And as you know, suffering is inevitable, but also the wrong time to sort out your doctrine of suffering is when you're actually going through a trial. You should not wait for a storm before you reinforce the hull of your ship. Let me read these verses for us. Please follow with me. James chapter one, verses two to four. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So just as an overview of the structure, verse two gives us the command or the exhortation, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Then verse three gives us the reason for that command, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then verse four further develops that reason, saying that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So if you'll indulge me, I think it would be really helpful if we dive into the reason first in verses three and four, and then we'll return to the command itself in verse two, which will hopefully then make more sense when we understand it in this context. So we'll first look at the purpose of trials, and this is where we'll spend most of our time. Then we'll look at the nature of trials, and then lastly, we'll look at how we ought to respond to trials. So firstly, the purpose of trials. Uh, let's look at what our trials actually achieve at verse, uh, from verse three. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, of course, there are many verses in the Bible that deal with the purpose of suffering. So if you don't mind, I'd like to um, turn to another verse just to contrast with our verse, which will hopefully illuminate our verse a little bit more for us. So if you don't mind hopping over to 1 Peter 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, because I think it's a really striking contrast. So 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the progression of the verses in 1 Peter 1 goes something like, you go through a trial, this shows that your faith is genuine, therefore your response should be joy. And this makes sense. If you put something under stress and it survives, then you know it is of value. Our faith has been shown to be of value. We didn't know this before the trial, now it has been tested, now we do know its value, therefore we rejoice. Going back to our verses in James, it's not that these verses in James don't say that. I think they do, but I think they make an even stronger link. What do our verses in James say about the testing? These verses say that testing produces steadfastness. Not that testing shows steadfastness, or proves steadfastness, or demonstrates steadfastness. No, actually testing produces and results in steadfastness. The Greek word here, katagodzomai, is the same word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter two, verse 12, when he gives the command to the Philippians to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, with fear and trembling. This Greek word, katagodzomai, means to work out, to produce, to achieve. So our trials are, if you will, working out our steadfastness. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, describes his own response to suffering in Romans uh, 5, verse 3. So if you wouldn't mind hopping over to Romans chapter 5, and we'll start from verse 2, in fact. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, this is super easy to understand why Paul is rejoicing. Why shouldn't we be joyful about the hope of the glory of God. But then he goes on to say, verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, 
you rejoice in your sufferings? Yes, he goes on, because knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. He says that they rejoice in their sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. This is the same word for producing endurance that we have in our passage in James chapter 1. But I think there's still a question here, and that question is, how? How does suffering produce steadfastness? Imagine you're running a marathon. Now, this analogy certainly requires every ounce of my imagination as I try to avoid running at all costs in marathons and just in general in life. So if you're like me, muster every ounce of your imaginative strength and imagine that you're running a marathon. While you're running this marathon, I put a backpack on you and I start adding weights. And every once in a while, I start adding another weight. More and more weights into the backpack. Would you say that as I add weights to your backpack, as I add to your suffering, remember, you're already running a marathon, so suffering is, is guaranteed and is already considerable. As I add to these weights, does that make you more likely to finish the marathon? Well, no. In the same way, are we more likely to endure as Christians because God has brought things into our lives that make them harder? Surely not. I hope I'm not alone in being a little bit puzzled by this argument of Paul's. But I think the answer is this. Through our trials and our suffering, we grow. We mature in Christ. We develop and demonstrate more and more of the fruit of the Spirit in deeper and broader ways, and we lose the selfish, rebellious, rebellious instincts of our hearts. In our marathon analogy, we can perhaps stretch this to say that adding weights while you run the marathon will make you a stronger runner over time. So in our trials and our suffering, we grow. And more importantly, most importantly perhaps, we rely more and more on God. Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, speaks of his own trials reading from 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 and 9. Listen to how he describes his own trial. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Quite the trial that Paul is describing here. But now here's the purpose that Paul sees behind this trial. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. As a Christian grows and develops a character more like Christ, they will be stronger against the next trial. Sin and temptation will repulse them more. The praise of men will seem less and less important. When faced with the next trial, they will be more reliant on God than during the last one. They will draw on what they have learned about themselves and about God. They will draw on their deeper, stronger relationship with God. They will lean harder and sooner on His promises. And hopefully with all of that, they will be in a stronger position to face the next trial. They will be in a stronger position to persevere, to endure. In other words, they will be steadfast. And it's not even about the specific lessons that the specific circumstances of that trial taught them. 
although these lessons are useful and are a clear grace from God to teach us his wisdom. Let's imagine that your trial was that you were going through financial problems. And through this trial, you learned to budget better and spend your money more wisely. Next time you face financial problems, you will hopefully weather that trial better. But that's not the primary purpose of that trial. Let's imagine that your trial was that you were going through problems in your marriage. And through this trial, you learned to communicate with your spouse better, you learned to be less selfish, more loving. Next time you're experiencing marital problems, you will hopefully weather that trial better. But again, that's not the primary purpose of your trial. Your trials are designed to make you more reliant on God. That is their higher purpose. And because your trials have more, made you more reliant on God, you will trust Him more through the next trial, whether it is a broken marriage or a disappointing career or a wayward child or a devastating death. So that's verse 3. Testing our faith produces steadfastness because trials grow us as Christians. They make us more reliant on God and therefore make us steadfast against the next trial. But verse 4 tells us that even steadfastness isn't the ultimate goal here. Reading from verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see that last phrase, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This then is the goal of our steadfastness, and therefore this is the goal of our trial. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In essence, having become perfectly sanctified. Now I think there's two ways to look at this. The one is linked to what we just said about how to get to be steadfast, which is um, the growth in Christian character that we experience, our sanctification. In other words, through our trials, we are sanctified. Therefore, we may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This growth in Christian character then is both the cause and the effect of our steadfastness. But I think there's another meaning here, which is something that I think a lot of Christians will already know to be true, which is that we will only be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, when we get to heaven. So then, this is not referring necessarily to our sanctification, but rather what we get from our steadfastness, which is that it will bring us to the end of our lives as strong, mature Christians. Our trials have made us stronger, more steadfast, therefore, we can finish the race. In that sense, our trials have made us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 7, that the time of his departure has come, he has fought the good fight, he has finished the race, he has kept the faith. If we can, I think it will be really helpful if we pause and appreciate the value of knowing and understanding God's purpose in our trials. Seeing God's purpose in our suffering makes all the difference in the world. Without God's purpose in our suffering, we are the victims of random circumstances, forces of nature. We are the victims of harmful, hurtful, and foolish consequences of our own sin and the sin of others. But 
if we see God's purpose in our suffering, then we will see the suffering for what it is, which is a servant of God achieving his purpose in our lives. Our suffering is not some part of the universe over which God does not have design, purpose, and control. Can I challenge you, can I encourage you right now to think of your trials in this way as a tool that God is using to sanctify you and keep you to the end? So we've looked at the purpose of our trials. Let's move to our second point and look at the nature of our trials. Let's hop back and look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, the word used here for trials can refer to a range of different hardships and tests from God. Indeed, James supports this by using the term various trials. And indeed, one of the themes of the rest of the book of James is dealing with different specific types of trials. And I think we can think of these trials in a number of different categories. There's the sort of trial that will try to tempt us away from obeying God. There are times when disobeying God will seem so much easier than obeying Him. There are times where disobeying God will seem to present a much greater reward than obeying Him. We might be mocked, punished, persecuted, or even killed for for our obedience of God, as many in the first century were. Perhaps obeying God will mean that we won't get the job that we had hoped for, or the spouse that we had hoped for. There are also the, the trials of struggling against sin and temptation. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that obedience is often difficult. There is no value in stoically pretending that it is not a trial sometimes to obey God. Obeying God and resisting sin is difficult. Sometimes it takes all the strength that we have to fight and resist the thing that we want most in that moment. Jesus describes living a life of obedience as taking up a cross. There is nothing easy about that. And then there are the trials of life's devastating tragedies and disappointments. Deaths, divorces, retrenchments, relationship breakdowns. And these are things that will try to draw us away from God, try to get us to doubt His goodness and His promises. Now, when we are given a command like this in the Bible that is rooted in an explanation like this one is, I know that for myself, I have an instinct to try uh, look for all the reasons why this particular command won't apply to me. Let me find something in the context of the original author and the original hearers of this message that exempts me from having to obey this command. And this might be easy because, of course, everyone's trials are unique. There is, no re- there is really no one in the world who has suffered through exactly what you have suffered through. There is a temptation to say, James, you don't know what it's like to be me. You don't know what I'm going through. And friends, it's true that James in the first century church don't know exactly what you are going through. That's true. But we need to remember that James is writing to a church that has never not lived under persecution. This church has been persecuted from its inception. They were persecuted as a church far more than we are. But more importantly, Christ knows your suffering. And he has suffered far worse than anything we will suffer. 
even though he didn't deserve it. So friends, can I encourage you to keep your definition of trial as broad as possible and not try to exclude the trials that we are going through, whether it is times that we are tempted to turn away from God to the prospect of something that we think is better, or whether it is external persecution, or whether it is wrestling with sin and temptation, or whether it is dealing with some devastating personal tragedy. If we try to make this definition of trial narrow and exclusive, we start excluding what we're, and we start excluding what we're going through as being a trial, um, as James is talking about, then we risk not seeing our trial as a trial. And then we risk not seeing it for what it is. We might forget that it is actually a tool that God is using for His purposes. And then, of course, we might risk having the incorrect response, which is joy, which is what we'll look at in a moment. So can I ask you, are you resisting seeing your trials in this way? Maybe because you don't want to see them as a tool that God is using. Or maybe you are trying to avoid this command of James. If this isn't a trial, then I don't need to respond to it with joy. Or maybe you are stoically pretending that your trials just aren't that bad. Maybe because others have it worse off than you, you think that you can't claim it as a trial. Can I encourage you to see your trials for what they are, tools working for God's purposes? Lastly, let's have a look at our final point, which is our response to trials, which is joy. Let's look at the exhortation from James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I think it would be helpful if we dealt with this term joy for a second. What does it mean to be joyful in the light of trials? Does joy mean happy? I think if joy means happy, then this is a really, really hard thing to do, right? In the midst of your deepest trial, is James telling you to be happy? Happy with the loss of your job, the spouse who walks out on your marriage, or the death of your child? Is James really telling us to be happy? Well, no, I think the answer to that is no. I think we can think of happiness as an emotion of pleasure, whereas joy is more of a state of being. I didn't come up with this definition, but I, th I really like it. The definition of joy as a state of settled contentment in every situation. A state of settled contentment in every situation. <clears throat> Friends, I also want to stress something else here about Christians and emotion, which is that as Christians, we don't have the right to simply feel the way we want to feel. Christians cannot get away with saying, that's just how I am, about anything in their lives that is not biblical. That's just how you are might be the reason for your disobedience, but it is certainly not a valid excuse. And this counts for our emotions as well as for any other part of our lives. As Christians, we have a responsibility to inform our emotions just as much as we inform every area of our lives with God's truth. We should not be governed by our emotions. Rather, we should be striving to allow right thinking about God and about ourselves to influence the way we feel. Can I encourage you 
not to give your emotions a free pass when it comes to obeying God. And as James is saying, part of that right thinking is to have joy in trials. And thanks to verses 3 and 4, which we looked at earlier, we know why this is. We know why we should have joy in our trials. And it's because of what these trials are growing in us and achieving in us. Now, I know this joy is a complex thing, but it is the right response to knowing the meaning of our present pain. Our joy is the right response to knowing the meaning of our present pain. We may feel the pain of our trials, but we ought to know God's purpose in them. So don't think that Christians need to walk around with those stylized theater masks with the giant smile on them, disguising a wretchedly unhappy sufferer underneath. The command here is to strive for joy, not artificial, paper-thin happiness. Before I close, it would be good to be reminded of something. James says, when you meet trials, not if. Friends, if anyone says that Christians should expect a life free from trials, they are clearly not reading their Bibles or indeed living in reality. Facing trials in this life is a certainty. Suffering is inevitable. Friends, there's also a sober warning here about the way in which we respond to trials. There is no guarantee that everyone who experiences a trial will emerge from it a stronger Christian. Sometimes God sends trials or uses trials as a way of showing who is saved and who isn't. So please take care that you use your trials to draw you closer to God not allow them to push you further away. Even in our worst sufferings, as bad as they may seem, as black and hopeless as our circumstances may feel to us, we know that they are nothing compared to the sufferings of Christ. We know that for those who call on Him as their Lord and Savior, Jesus suffered in their place. We know that through His death, he has brought us eternal life. We know that he was raised from the dead and reigns without rival and challenge. We know that he has earned for us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who will be with us in our trials, who will use those trials to strengthen us, to make us more like Christ and, per and preserve us to the end. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would preserve us in our trials. Help us remember the most important thing about our trials is not the suffering that they bring, but the steadfastness that they produce. Make us strong through them, and may we turn to you as the source of strength in our trials. And in our trials, help us rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.